Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling Lawrence D. Burns. Lawrence has served as Corporate Vice President of Research and Development and Strategic Planning at General Motors and is now an advisor to the Google self-driving car. In autonomy, he uses his own research, experience, and expertise to tell the full story of driverless cars up to this point and how he thinks our entire transportation system will change based on emerging technology. We spoke to Lawrence about developments that have been made over the past several years and many of the implications driverless cars will have across the world. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Lawrence D. Burns, who is the author of Autonomy. And Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Good, good. Let's get right into it then. Um, So your book is all about the quest to build the driverless car. Um, Are these driverless cars closer to becoming mainstream than the public is aware? Uh, yes, I, I believe that. I've had the uh, fortunate experience to be working with companies who are developing uh, this technology. I, I get to ride in the cars on a fairly regular basis. And uh, yes, the self-driving technology is, is real. Um, it's not completely proven for every possible driving situation that Americans confront. But there's been great progress that, that's been made and um, very limited scale. Uh, companies are getting pretty close to to launching their first services with this technology. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, and so in the book, at one point, you talk about how in January t- 2008, you made a prediction that these autonomous vehicles would be on the road in 10 years. Are we where you thought we would be now? Well, I'm very excited about the progress that's been made those 10 years. You know, right. I had a chance to participate in what was called the DARPA Urban Challenge. I was head of research and development for General Motors, and we sponsored Carnegie Mellon University. And it was a driverless car race out of Victorville, California, with Carnegie Mellon and GM at the fortune of winning. And I was asking after that race, when, when would this be real? And, you know, as a technologist, and I'm an optimistic technologist by nature, Margaret, you kind of think about what's going to have to happen for it to become real. And I thought a 10-year learning process was a stretch goal that could conceivably be reached. And quite honestly, if you have a chance to uh, see what's going on, for example, in Chandler, Arizona, with what Waymo was doing, you realize that that 10 years was not too far off. The remarkable thing that's happened is I think it's moved even faster than I would have imagined. Uh, the Chevy Tahoe which was called Boss, that won that race in 2007, was completely filled with hardware, computer processors and sensors and all of that in order to compete in the race. And on the roof of the vehicle, it was filled to capacity as well. And now what you're seeing are are all of these components have matured so much and they're packaged into the car in a, a, a much more simplistic way and the learning that's been done on real public roads has been phenomenal over this decade. And that's really what engineers do. As soon as you realize something might be possible, and that's what the DARPA challenge, I think, approved to us, 
um, the learning is, is what happens, and there's been an awful lot of learning on, on public roads. In fact, I think Waymo's getting about a million miles a month now in our learning process, which is, is, is quite impressive. Is it going to be mainstream for everybody within a year or two? No. Uh, but in selected communities on a limited scale, where the people moving around in autonomous vehicles to support their daily life, uh, yes, I think those small-scale applications are right around the corner. Mm. So you mentioned the DARPA challenge, um, these series of races and challenges that um, had different teams competing to build these driverless cars. Um, they're very high stakes, very high pressure. Do you think these races were the best strategy to sort of kickstart work on autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I think uh, DARPA is an example of a government uh, agency that really spends taxpayer dollars wisely. It's tough to estimate exactly how much DARPA spent in total because there were three races. There were two races in the desert, and then there was what was called the Urban Challenge, which was involved a community-type setting. And, you know, there was $30 million or $40 million that were spent to uh, organize and sponsor and conduct those races. When you look at what was stimulated by that, um, it's phenomenal. And where we are today in terms of the value creation that's taking place, the jobs creation that has occurred. So I, I think this kind of a, of a stretch goal racing spirit uh, really is motivational for uh, technology development. You might ask, why was DARPA involved in this? It's extensive with Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Well, we had 9 11, and 9 11 led to a couple of very serious wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and our soldiers were in harm's way because of these explosive devices. Um, and the, the idea was if we could create a military vehicle that could do missions without soldiers in the vehicle, we would keep, keep them out of harm's way. And DARPA was concerned that the traditional defense contractors weren't moving fast enough on that mission, so they came up with this idea to tap into the best brightest talent around the nation, young people at universities. And we are where we are right now, and I think they've pulled the agenda on the potential of this technology ahead by decades because of what they did with these races. Mm. So in the book, you talk a lot about our current transportation system and how that's so inefficient and wasteful. Um, so break that down for us. Why, why is this such an inefficient um, system of transportation we have right now? Yeah, well, it's interesting. We've had essentially the same DNA and the design of our vehicles for 130 years. Human-driven, combustion-powered, oil-energized, um, operates as a standalone device and primarily hydraulically and mechanically controlled. And you send back and other um, products that support our daily lives, and you ask how many of those have not really transformed in over a century. You, you can't find many other examples, but the automobile, yes, the automobile is cleaner, safer, and more affordable, more comfortable, but in fact, it's the same fundamental concept that existed 130 years ago. And what that has spawned is an enormously wasteful transportation system. People buy cars and then leave them parked 90 to 95 percent of the time. So as a result, we have three parking spots for every car in the nation. Uh, the energy in a gallon of gasoline is used to energize the car. When you bring that energy, about three quarters of it gets lost as heat. The rest moves the car. The car weighs 4,000 pounds and people weigh 150 to 200 pounds. 
That means only 1% to 2% of the energy in a, in a gasoline moves the driver. Um, the uh, waste of your time tethered to the steering wheel having to drive the car, the waste of your time looking for a place to park. And the auto industry has assumed that customers are going to be willing to put up with these hassles of shopping for a car, signing for insurance, for finance, looking for a place to park, spending your time driving it, stopping for gas, all of that. Now all of that's ripe for change. We've seen a remarkable convergence of autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, business models that sell the trip, the mile, the experience rather than a car, and very importantly, the ability to tailor design the car for the kinds of trips people make. 80% of the trips we make as Americans are one- and two-person trips. So now for the first time in over a century, we have a chance to create a new DNA, one that is going to get at So are these driverless cars safer than having humans drive cars? Uh, traffic safety experts, um, the people who do this for a living, believe uh, driverless cars have the potential to eliminate over 90% of the crashes that occur. Why do they believe that? Because over 90% of the crashes are caused by human error. And um, what we're doing is we're taking sensors, things like lasers and radar and cameras, and very detailed digital maps, so think about street view on steroids, and then onboard processors, and so we can sense around the car, 360 degrees around the car, what's going on in real time. These sensors don't get tired, they don't get distracted, they don't get drunk, and they learn from car to car, and they, it's like eagle-eye vision with eyes in the back of your head. And we take everything that's being sensed, we bounce it against the reference of the digital map, and then we answer the same two questions you have to answer when you're driving, Michael. How fast should I be going and which way should I be steering? And once that software makes the decisions in a self-driving car, it then actuates the accelerator or the braking system or the steering system. So conceptually, it's the same thing we're doing as a person. The reason it'll be safer is, is because we eliminate those human errors um, that underlie most of the crashes that occur today. It breaks my heart every time I hear about a crash that involves, let's say, someone going the wrong way on a freeway, or that involves somebody being um, over the limit and, and drinking. We have to get that out of the system. Today, there's 40,000 Americans dying on U.S. roads. There's 1.3 million people worldwide dying on roadways. If we can get to the full potential of driverless cars one day sooner, this is simple math, 90% of 1.3 million is a million, divided by 365 is 3,000. Getting to this full potential one day sooner saves 3,000 lives. So that's why I believe the biggest risk here is not moving forward with the technology as fast as we can responsibly move forward in its development because of the um, the opportunity to, to reduce harm. Mm -hmm. That's an incredible statistic and the potential these cars have. Um, I want to talk about the concept of autonomy. So it's the title of the book. Um, it's in part a reference to the cars having their own autonomy. Um, but in terms of the drivers and the passengers of the vehicles, um, how does our autonomy change with these driverless cars? Do we, in a sense, gain autonomy, or are we losing it? 
Oh, we're all going to gain our autonomy in so many different ways. First of all, there's over a billion vehicles on the planet, and there's what, six billion people in the world, something like that. So only about 15% of the world's population get to experience the freedom that an automobile enables today. Um, why aren't the other ones experiencing it? It could be because they're too old to drive, they're too young to drive, they have a disability, they can't afford a car. Um, a lot of these uh, people are outside of the United States, granted. First and foremost, autonomy or the vision that we talk about in the book, it's going to enable this freedom for many, many, many more people to experience it. It's going to enable the freedom even more so because we believe we can reduce the cost per mile of moving around compared to owning and operating your own car on the order of 75 to 80 percent, which is a remarkable reduction in cost. And those, those facts are discussed carefully in the book. It's based on research I bought at, at Columbia University at the Earth Institute that's led by Jeff Sachs. So it's, it's more affordable and it provides better freedom. So it's going to give people who own cars today but have to spend their time driving, it's going to enhance their autonomy because now they can use their time as they please rather than having to be tethered to the steering wheel. Um, so, so this dimension of, of freedom is hugely important. But let me talk about another form of autonomy, Michael. It's the autonomy of future generations. We have a transportation system that is not sustainable, whether your concern is climate change, congestion, roadway fatalities. Sustainable, sustainable mobility is about providing the freedom of future generations to move around. So we're going to be enhancing the freedom of these future generations as well. So it, it's, a, it's a remarkably powerful word, and it was selected because of all of these dimensions of, of, of freedom and independence that I think the convergence of these new technologies will provide. Mm, absolutely. Um, so speaking of future generations, um, what are the implications of driverless cars for the job market? Um, several very important uh, implications on jobs. There's the obvious one. People who make a living as a driver uh, certainly could be impacted uh, significantly. Take the old road truck driver. Uh, typically that job pays about 50 cents a mile wage and another 14 cents a mile benefits. There's a shortage of over-the-road truck drivers. It's a tough job. People are away from their homes to do the job. It's, it, it can be tedious. And so the trucking industry is challenged to find enough drivers. We're in an economy now that is very much on a path toward growing e-commerce rapidly. And the competitive basis of that is getting you your own package within one day of when you've ordered it. So if you take something like an autonomous over-the-road truck, you reduce the cost because you reduce that cost of labor. Then think about all the parts on that tractor that are there because the human drives it. The windshield, the doors, the seats, the air conditioner, all those steering and controlling parts. Suddenly you realize that the cost of that tractor will be less when it's autonomous than it is today because of all the parts you put on it for humans. Then you can use that tractor 23 hours a day rather than 11 hours a day that drivers are constrained to. So all in all, this is going to make trucking better. Yes, the impact is going to be on the truck driver. I, I understand that. Other people, there's 4 million Americans who make their living as a driver. The most common category in census from state to state on what your job is is driver. 
So those people will be impacted. We're going to have to find a way to transition them into the economy appropriately. But let's talk about some other jobs out there. An autonomous electric vehicle that's tailor-designed um, for the kinds of trips we make, which are these one- and two-person trips typically, will probably have one-tenth as many parts in it as a conventional car. So think about the jobs implication for automobile suppliers and automobile manufacturers. Very, very significant impact there. Other jobs, um, the corner gas station. Um, most of these vehicles will be part of a transportation service and they will get re-energized um, in fleet-type operations as opposed to the corner gas station. Parking. Uh, the parking of the car will be done because the car is really smart. It knows where, where to go and either wait for you because you have a dedicated use vehicle or it will go and just serve somebody else and not be parked at all. Um, so the, the implications cut across the entire economy, car dealerships um, as well. The oil industry, um, my math suggests that when this vision matures, we'll probably need about 80% less oil for transportation in the U.S. than we demand today. Think about the jobs associated with the exploration of production, refinement, and distribution of, of oil for transportation. So bottom line, huge impact on jobs. Is that a showstopper for what's going on with those huge vested interests by those people who have those jobs? And I get that. I absolutely understand that fully. We need to find a way to manage this transition so these people can prepare for this new economy. And uh, we've been through these huge economic transformations in the past. Just look at the agricultural industry. So I think we'll get through it, and there'll be a whole bunch of new jobs that get created as a result of, of what this um, technology will enable. So, Lawrence, I just have one more question for you. Um, this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Um, since this this is primarily geared towards teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Uh, my favorite teacher, um, can I, I'll give you two answers, Michael. I had one in ninth grade algebra named Miss Mitchell. And Miss Mitchell was a very disciplined uh, teacher. She really taught me algebra. And algebra became so important in my engineering education because everything dealt off of algebra. I ended up being the tutor for my um, undergraduate university in math and, and um, mechanics. And um, so many times the students would come to me challenged with math. It wasn't that they didn't get the concept of calculus. It's that they hadn't mastered algebra to take the answer to its final form. It was remarkable. Then I had a professor named Stephen Pollack at the University of Michigan on my master's work, where for the first time, Professor Pollack gave me problems to solve that instilled the confidence that I could take what I had learned as an engineer and really apply it. It was so satisfying that he would give us these unstructured questions, a question, for example, like the population of cod in the North Atlantic is declining what can be done about that? And use mathematics and engineering models to address very unstructured problems. So that instilled the confidence in me. And finally, when I was doing my PhD work, I had a professor named Gordon Newell at UC Berkeley. Professor Newell really focused on the question, not the answer. He felt it was extremely important to spend 90% of your time figuring out what the question is. And by the time you understood the question, you were much closer to your answer. 
and um, I took two classes from him, and that's all we worked on. What are the questions? And I still I use that way of thinking throughout my entire career. What what is the question? And that was a very very important life lesson for Professor Mill. One last point I want to make. I think autonomy is a it's it's a really great read. I think it's a great read for any young person who's interested in science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics. My hope is that there's a ninth grade student out there whose high school teacher will motivate them to read all the time, and that autonomy will shake their thinking about just how much fun it can be to be an engineer and participate in some of these challenges. All right. Well, that's great. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much. This has been terrific talking to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your interest. Sure. No problem. Have a good day. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.